give us an early bird start here. Good morning, I'm Mark Holly. <clears throat> you know, every time I say those words, my name's Martin, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm reminded of the blessedness of my sobriety. Because I'm sober, I get to be up here this morning. Now, when John called me, <clears throat> he asked me how things were going. If I'd have said, now, John, I got out of detox a couple of days ago. Still a little queasy. Not sweating very much now. I can keep a little light stuff down. The shakes are almost gone. Now, John might have said a lot of encouraging things to me, but I doubt seriously if he'd asked me if I'd come over here and share my experience and hope with you folks this morning, you know? <clears throat> you know, when I say to you, my name's Martin, I'm an alcoholic. In that introduction, I've told you who I am and what I am. You know, for a long, long time, each time when I'd awaken or come to, the who would say to the what, we ain't going to drink today. And the what would say to the who, who said so. The who would say, well, I say so. The what would say, well, we'll see about that. And many of you know the scenario that took place. The what would get drunk, and the who would have a hangover. And you know, that's the way it was for a long, long time. Time after time after time. Now, the Who never approved of a single blackout or hangover it ever had, but it accepted each and every one of them. But then something happened, and the telling of that happening is the heart of every recovered AA story. You know, Bill Wilson oftentimes said there are moments, and for these moments, we give our lives. Now, because of this happening, today when I awaken in the Who says to the what, we ain't going to drink today. And the what says to the who, who said so? The who answers me and my higher power, which is God, say so. And we haven't had a drink all day long. And that's the way it's been now, folks, for quite some time. One day at a time. You know, even though I'm grateful to be here this morning, safe, sane, and sober, I must remember that I didn't used to be. And the nature of my illness is such, the nature of my being is such, that I may not be again someday. For you know, no matter how well I'm doing right now, that gives me no real guarantee, no immunity as to how well I'll be doing at some future date, such as a month from now, or six months from now, or a year from now. So you see, in that regard, I really suffer from an immunity deficiency disease, so far as my alcoholism is concerned. And the story is told about this patient who returned to St. Thomas Hospital once he ran up to Sister Ignatia, and he said, this is the 10th anniversary of my sobriety. He was just bubbling, you know, he was just all over himself. And Sister Ignatia says, well, now that's just wonderful. But don't you forget, should you ever need our services again, we still have your size in pajamas. Now, how's that for a reminder for you? You know, that reminds me that as a human being, my memory is short and selective. And as an alcoholic human being, I'm an expert forgetter. So you see, I must keep a green memory, not only from whence I came, but more importantly, what I must continue to be and do if my spiritual health is to be maintained at a level 
that'll keep me from reverting. Well, you know, I'm just like you. I'm not cured of my alcoholism. All I have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. Now, the shortest and most secure route to this level of spiritual condition which will keep me from reverting is the principles of AA, well understood, religiously obeyed and practiced to the best of my ability in my daily affairs. And as long as I continue to do this, my spiritual health will be maintained at a level that will keep me from reverting. But you know, it's also important for me to remember how God has worked in previous conflicts in my life. And to remember that the solution always was submission of my will to his will. And that his grace was always sufficient. And you know, in this regard, folks, a long memory is not nearly as good as a short pencil. So let's write it down. You see, in writing these things down, I'm keeping a spiritual diary. And then when something pops up again, I can go back and say, well, now, what happened the last time this kind of thing happened in my life? You know, there's an old adage which says, when the pupil is ready, the teacher will appear. And that's been almost a truism in my journey since I've been privileged to begin and continue my journey into recovery. Early on, there came some lines my way which addressed my conscience, and they continue to have increasing meaning for me. These lines were penned by a man named Peter Marshall. Now, I don't know that Peter Marshall is an alcoholic or not, but I'm convinced that these lines of his were meant for this alcoholic ears to hear. And I quote them to you for two reasons. One is, they say what I think, feel, believe, and know to be true, better than I can say it myself. And number two, in hopes that they will help you, as they've helped me. Peter Marshall says, I know, Father, that I must come to you just as I am. But I also know that I dare not go away just as I came. Often I've known failure. Failure in the moral realm, failure in ethics, failure in my attitude, failure in my disposition. I've confessed all these things to you, and you've graciously forgiven me. But I know, Father, that merely to forgive me will not suffice. For unless I am changed, I'll do these same things again. So at last I realize that only you can correct that which is in me that makes me do wrong. So where I'm blind, you must do something about my sight. When I fail to heed your voice, you must do something about my deafness. And Father, when I deliberately choose to do that which I know is wrong, you must do something about my will. So I acknowledge my total dependence upon you. So make me over into the person you want me to be, so that I might find that destiny for which you did give me birth. And for your help, and the help of my many wonderful friends who are plenteous in their mercies, I give you my gratitude. Now I trust that your higher power and mine will take what follows and use it to enhance your sobriety and mine. You see, even though I'm grateful to be here this morning, safe, sane, and sober, I must remember that there's some things that I must do, or I may not be again sometime, you know. You know, I'm sure that if I hadn't have told you already, many of you could have guessed by now that I'm an alcoholic, 
and my problem is Martin. You see, until we believe the problem, the answer is of none effect. Because as long as I could blame my last drunk on anything else or anybody else except me, I had another drunk coming. You know, it's sometimes said that the newcomer is the life's blood of AA, and I believe there's truth in that. But I'm also equally convinced that the old-timer is the blood bank of AA. And I've had many life-saving transfusions from AA's blood bank. One of the earliest life-saving transfusions in this regard was in regard to what's the problem. You see, when I was still stumbling around and non-realization, non-acceptance, and denial, really, of what's the problem. An old-timer took me aside one night, after I'd been coming to A about three months, and he said, Martin, said, you're having trouble with this problem, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, you fellas come in here with all these degrees, and you complicate this program to no end. He said, so I'm going to make it real simple for you. Because I want you to get your piece of cardboard about this wide and about this long, and you write on it, you are looking at the problem. You put it up on the mirror where you shave each morning. Then you're going to start out each day knowing what the problem is. He says, then you can spend all the rest of the day in the solution. You know, Shakespeare said it this way. He said, the false to Brutus is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Pogo, the comic strip, said, we have met the enemy, and the enemy is us. Now, Ogmandina said, we were a god playing a fool. You know, man is the one creature who wants to be God. And when he realizes that, in fact, he is not God, then he attempts to play God. That led our beloved Bill Wilson to say, first of all, we had to quit playing God. But the genius that's in the next little short thing says it didn't work. You know, that's why Bill Wilson's story is holds such preeminence in our textbook and in many of our AA discussions because he was one of the first alcoholics to realize what his problem was and the solution at the same time. And this realization has to come to each one of us who recovers from this disease of alcoholism. Then, you know, the Apostle Paul said, and this should remind each one of us, just how desperate we really were before we got here. He said, having no hope and without God in the world. We were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life, for we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead. You see, when I say to you I'm an alcoholic, I'm saying to you in short, simple, concise terms, I can't drink liquor and live. For with me, sobriety and life are synonymous. But in a spiritual sense, I'm saying to you that of myself and by myself, I can't keep from drinking alcohol, and my life is unmanageable by me. You see, since I've been privileged to be a part of this fellowship and this program, I've come to realize, come to know, that the real problem with my alcoholic self, with my human self, was conscious separation from God. I've also come to know that the only real, true, and lasting solution to my problem is a return in conscious awareness to the living God which made us. So again, until we believe the problem, 
the answer is of non effect. A few years ago there were some lines in the grapevine that that this alcoholic writes to God and he says to God, I have a problem in his eye. A good while later he gets an answer back from God and God says, I have an answer. It is I. You know, one of our co-founders had a lot of trouble getting sober and staying sober. For two and a half years prior to meeting Bill Walton, Dr. Bob attended Dr. Grouper's meetings. He read their spiritual literature and went through the devotion exercises, yet he kept on getting drunk almost every night. So one morning after such a night, he was talking to his good friend Henry. I said, said, Henry, you know, I think I'm just one of those wanna-wanna guys. And Henry said, no, Dr. Bob, I'm sure you want to get sober and you want to stay sober. You just haven't found a way to work it yet. Now, folks, I can identify with that. Before I got here, I desperately wanted to get sober and I wanted to stay sober. But until I got here, I hadn't found a way to work it yet. Now, folks, I didn't come to realize these things until I'd gotten physically sober. And I'd been physically sober for some time. So I hope I'm never guilty of belittling physical sobriety. Because until physical sobriety became top man on the totem pole for me, I couldn't have it. Unless it remains top man, I can't keep it. You know, some people in my family and my close friends back home, they think I'm a little overboard on this business of physical sobriety and you say a way of life, but I'm not. How can you be overboard on something that saves your life and continues to give you the best life you've ever lived? And folks, I haven't been around too long, but I've been around long enough to know that it's continued to get better as time goes on. And I've heard people who've been with this journey, this journey twice as long as I have, which says it still continues to get better. I have this friend who's a Catholic priest, blah, 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 but he has now something like 47, 48 years, and he says it gets better, and it gets better. And when you think it can't get any better, it gets better. I've been around about 23 years, and I can certainly identify with that up through this time. Now, when I say to you I'm a recovering alcoholic, I'm saying to you that the way out of my untreated alcoholic condition and into my recovered condition, the way out of conscious separation from God into conscious awareness of the presence of God is the most important thing in my life. I'm saying to you that my God is alive and that I'm seeking him. And I'm coming to know that my God is a rewarder of all those who diligently seek him. You know, we read something at some of our meetings called the Promises. But the promise I like most in the, our big book, there's a lot of promises, not just 12. It's found on page 57. It says, He has come to all who has honestly sought him. He has come to all who has honestly sought him. So now when I say to you I'm a recovered alcoholic, I'm not identifying with a problem. For you see, the problem no longer exists. The problem has been removed. But I'm identifying with a solution. You know, in AA, we're not so much into problem solving as we are into solution working. In the 12 steps of AA, we have a universal solution 
doesn't matter what the problem is. We've got a universal solution. But you know, the real mission of AA is not solving the problems we have before we get here or solving the problems that develop after we get here. The real mission of AA is removing the disability that caused the problem in the first place. Every time I read that line in John's Gospel, it says, whereas I was blind, now I see. I just have to wonder, could that have been a sighted alcoholic? That it had the principles of this program applied in his or her life under the auspices of honesty, willingness, and open-mindedness. Well, you know, an open mind will give us eyes that see and ears that hear and a heart that feels. A few years ago, I was watching this <clears throat> nighttime soap opera entitled Dallas, you know, and there's a lady on that program that <clears throat> sometimes portrayed the part of an alcoholic. <clears throat> she and this lady were sitting in a very plush restaurant. Waiter comes over and the lady friend orders a <clears throat> cup of coffee and Sue Ellen, who is the lady playing the alcoholic, she orders an alcoholic drink. She waiter brings the drinks. Sue Ellen picks hers up and quickly consumes a goodly portion of it. You know, sometimes that we alcoholics don't drink, we consume. And when she did, the lady friend says, Sue Ellen, when are you going to stop drinking? As well, if I ever stop drinking, it'll be because something else becomes more important to me than my need for alcohol. Folks, I can identify with that. Something else has become more important to me than my need for alcohol. You see, I found a way to live happy, joyous, and free without needing, wanting, or having to have a drink of alcohol, any funny pills, any pretty capsules. Any cigarettes? Don't have to kiss any frogs or eat any mushrooms. So you see, I found a solution. A solution which is a conscious contact with God. A spiritual awakening. Rebirth. There's a step between our untreated alcoholic condition and our recovered condition. A step between our conscious separation from God and our return in conscious awareness with God, which we seem to little understand. It's really the step of rebirth. Now, the first 100 understood this. And it's so stated in our textbook, they said it this way. They said that we felt new power flow in as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. Now, that's what the first 100 said. Now, folks, it's possible to float passively past this most important issue in our program and therefore miss the tremendous privileges and opportunities and benefits it can extend to us. But you see, without this conscious contact, without this rebirth, then we have to live on the crumbs of the program with no joy, no peace, no rest, and no victory. Now, many give intellectual assent to this truth and then be careless and nonchalant, or even turn away altogether. A few years ago, I was invited to share at the anniversary celebration of AA in one of our larger northern cities. On Thursday afternoon, I arrived at the airport in that city. This AA couple, man and wife, who had been in our fellowship, had picked up their 11-year fellow, fellowship medallion, who were to be my host that weekend, picked me up at the airport, and they drove me over to the hotel where the meetings were to be held. And as we got in and settled down, the man said to me, he says, Now, Martin, we don't like to hear too much about this God stuff up here. I said, Well, what do you do about the 
mine and our book that says we were reborn. He said, that doesn't say that, does it? It was my habit, then was, it still is, I like to carry my big book with me when I travel. And I took my big book out of my little briefcase and I handed it to him. And I said, let's turn to page 63 and start at the top and let's see what we find. So he did. He got down there about line 11 or 12, you know, and said, we were reborn. He looked at me with a very blank look on his face and he said, you know, I didn't know that was in the book. You know, it's sometimes said, and I think you alluded to it the other day, that if you want to hide something from the membership of the fellowship of the A.R., you got to do is put it within the covers of this big book and it'll remain a secret forever. <laughs> now, how I got started. Now, most of us, and I certainly it's true with me, I took action because I felt the heat, not because I saw the light. You know, our textbook says it this way. It says, circumstances made him willing to believe. He humbly offered himself to his maker. And then he knew. You know, when I was being made ready for recovery from self and those things which grew out of self, there were a number of things which I had to face up to. I had to admit, accept, and surrender to the fact that I'm bodily and mentally different from other people. You know, at Shilworth, he wrote a letter, a piece of the grapevine once entitled Slips in Human Nature. He said a lot of good things in that, but one thing that stuck with me out of that was he said, I think we can help the alcoholic more if we can first recognize that they are primarily a human being afflicted with human nature. I think the wisdom of AA is simple and profound. AA takes wisdom's vision, God's vision of the human being, and applies that vision to the alcoholic human being. So the first step in this spiritual odyssey, this AA conversion process, is the alcoholic human being must accept the reality of their humanness. Now you see, the delusion that I was like other people at present maybe had to be smashed. And this one darn near killed me, folks, because I was always willing to take one more chance on me and alcohol. I was like that little wino. We heard a little bit about him the other day. Finally, Panhandle's enough to get a half pint. Gets this half pint, he walks in the alley, and he pulls that half pint out of his pocket, and looking at it, and seal is still unbroken. Such thoughts as these are going through his head. I know you killed my best friend, John. Caused my family to turn against me. Caused me to lose the last ten jobs I've had. Caused him to foreclose on the mortgage on my house, and he made him repossess my car, and I no, my wife would divorce me if she could just get up with me. I'm going to give you one more chance. You see, see, all thoughts for not taking that first drink are easily pushed to one side by the silly idea. It'll be different this time. And then when I wanted to quit entirely, I found I couldn't do it on my own. I had to have help. And this brought me to you. And for this, I'll forever be grateful because we've done together what I couldn't do alone. You know, Barbara Streisand, she popularized a lot of songs, and one that comes to mind in this context is people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. You see, I now know that I need you, and you need me. But I know how I need you. I need you in mutuality. Before I got here, I needed people. I needed them so I could dominate and control them. Sometimes I needed them to Go get me another drink when I was too sick. Go get it. 
You know, some people can have in degree jealousy, selfishness, self-centeredness. I can't. You see, I'm an alcoholic. I can't even have justified anger or justified resentment. Now, these may be the dubious pleasures of other people, but for me, they're poisons. See, it makes no difference for me to allow myself to get drunk on anger, fear, spiritual pride, or self-righteousness. For if I do, it's just a matter of time, and usually a short time, that I'm again flat on my back, a a babbling idiot, drunk again on whiskey or gin or beer or wine. You see, these these things we call character defects, these shortcomings, the missing of the mark, are not peculiar to we alcoholics. They're traits of mankind. We alcoholics simply can't afford them. For you see, we are very sensitive people. We bruise easily, we don't suffer well, and we heal slowly. We quickly find an antidote for our suffering. Alcohol, alcohol, or other drugs, or suicide. I was born the oldest of eight sons, the apple of my father's eye, and a family of 14 children. And I had a lot of self-drive on through elementary and high school. In seventh grade, there were six awards to be given to the class, and I received all six of those awards. When I finished the eleventh grade in North Carolina, I went back to Michigan, where I'd been born, and graduated from high school <clears throat> as valedictorian of that high school class. By the time I graduated from high school, I felt that I could, if I put, took a decision and put my mind to it, I could do almost anything. And, and most often I would get the results hoped for. I'd be right. I'd be number one. I didn't have to say, I don't know. Now, this was doing my dad and others proud. But it was doing something to me that was later to become my undoing. Well, you see, I was becoming selfish, self-centered, and self-sufficient. And all their obnoxious splendor. And each time I moved that tassel over from the right-hand side of my cap, I became more selfish, self-centered, and self-sufficient. Much later on, I was to learn that the first 100 found and said, selfishness, self-centeredness, that, we think, is the root of our problem. So, barely 18 years of age, I was enrolled as a freshman at the University of Michigan, along with some 20,000 other students. Now, that didn't bother me at all, because I knew I had... The power to master anything they had there. So <clears throat> after three and a half years, I received a BS degree from that institution. But it was there during my sophomore year that I met the lady Bacchus in the form of a case of slits. A case of slits was I had one from a fellow student who I played in blackjack. I came into my dorm room one night about 10.30 and he brought this case of slits up to my room. And that was against university regulation, by the way. And when I got there, he and another student had started in on my beer. So that meant I had to play catch-up in order to get my share. Well, they said to me the next day, they said, you better never do to us again what you've done last night. They said I would get out in the hallway, start naked, and they had to spend the rest of the night putting my pajamas back on and keeping me hid from the house mother who lived on the same floor, right around the corner, because if she'd become privy to what was going on, we'd all be kicked out of school. So you see, I know now that I blacked out with my first drinking experience. And I suppose that would make me a primary alcoholic, for whatever that's worth. I know I didn't like the taste of the stuff, and I can't say that I ever really liked the taste of alcohol. Because I never drank with meals. I drank many and many a time instead of eating, but never with meals. See, I drank alcohol for its effect, because it resolved the conflict somewhat and allowed me to live in what I perceived to be a hostile environment. Later on, it allowed me to live in the skin with a man I grew to hate. 
I'd have to say that alcohol probably at that time may have saved my life because it of I'm sure it saved my sanity for a while anyway. I'll tell you, I didn't have much more trouble with my drinking the rest of my <clears throat> college and medical school life. <clears throat> the last six months that I drank, I was admitted eight different times to various psychiatric hospitals and institutions. Three of those admissions were on involuntary commitments. I still hold the record from my county for being the only person involuntarily committed twice in one week for drinking. Now, folks, that's just what it took to get me here. I had one brother who had himself debutized by the <clears throat> sheriff of that county. So he could, and after, I didn't know this at the time, I knew it later. He said he did that so I wouldn't be humiliated by being driven around by uniformed deputies. Well, you know, it didn't matter to me who was driving the car. At that time, many of the several times, they would get me a fifth of liquor and put me in the car and drive into another detox unit, you know. You know, my drinking continued until I got to the point that I like to call the loneliness of onlyness. See, there, at this time, there were only two people in my immediate environment who were still helping me with my drinking. And they were threatening to leave if I didn't do something about my drinking. But you know, I'm so grateful that those two people didn't leave. Now, they knew very little about AA. They knew almost nothing about alcoholism. But they knew how to love. You know, Dr. Bob, in his last major speech to AA in July of 1950 in Cleveland, he was literally dying at the time. In fact, did die later on on November 16th. And he was advised not to go to the conference, but he did. And they helped him to the podium. He only spoke about seven minutes that day. And he said, he said, you know, there are a couple of things that we might lay a little emphasis on. He says, one is the utter simplicity of our program. So let's not louse it up with Freudian complexes and things which might be of interest to the scientific mind, but have very little to do with our actual work. He says, the second thing is, when those 12 steps are simmered down to the last, they resolve themselves into two words, love and service. He says, you all know what love is, and you all know what service is. So let's bear these two things in mind. Sometimes I wonder where such people as Freddie Prince, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, William Holden, Judy Garland, and untold others might be, if somebody had recognized that they had been on a self-destruct course and brought them to a program tailor-made for their needs and help them seek redirection in their lives. I think the point I'm at now is I really believe the only alcoholic and addict that's totally hopeless is one that nobody loves. I was watching 60 Minutes a few years ago and Martin Sheen and Harry Reid and Harry is now dead as many of you know. They were walking down the slum alley in New York and Harry was saying to Martin, he said, you know these people, there'd be a man laying here in a doorway and one under a box here and one on a bench over here. And he said, you know these people die from overexposure, from overdose and murder. And Martin said, yeah, some of them die from just being unloved. 
The last real lag of my spiritual odyssey began one September morning. I was sitting in the living room of mental health division in Moore County General Hospital. Dr. Ted Clark walked up to me and he said, Martin, how do you feel? You see, the last two times I had come to, he was staring me in the face with a grin on his face that I thought needed a little fixing. said, Martin, how do you feel? It don't have to be this way. It don't have to be this way. When he said to me, how do you feel? I said, almost by echo, totally helpless, Ted. I knew at that moment that I was powerless to improve my life. That last flicker of individual defiance had been snuffed out. I stood at the turning point we talk about in here. I became willing to die to self. I surrendered. And that was victory for me, for I became open to suggestion. I became teachable. And while I was there being made ready, they suggested several things that I might do, and I might find the help I wanted and that I needed. So I began to follow direction. And so I entered a 28-day program for the treatment of alcoholism, and there I came face to face with here the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. You know, it seemed like there was some Latter-day Isaiah looking over my shoulder and said, Martin, this is your way out. Walk ye in it. You know, if you happen to find yourself in an uncharted minefield and you happen to see footsteps, it's a good idea to follow them real closely. I hadn't been there very long when I began to realize that. And remember a verse I'd remembered and quoted many and many a time as a child. It says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Each day that I live now, I become more and more convinced that this program of Alcoholics Anonymous is the finest formula ever conceived in the mind of man through the grace of God for the alcoholic to take up his cross and follow the Christ to the end. You know, as we bring this conference to a close tomorrow and we begin to go to our several homes, I request and ask that we go in true pride. True pride is he is the father. I am the child. But the charge to all of us is, and this is the formula for sobriety, it's the formula for recovery, it's the formula for the good life. Not just that short span of time noted on our headstone between date of birth and date of death, but it's the formula for eternal life, and we all know it. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past and give freely of what you find and join us. And we will be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And surely you'll meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. Thank you, God bless you. Uh, well, as usual, we have 15 more minutes and we ask volunteers to come up and share a little of your, how you're doing today, or giving some encouragement to somebody. So who wants to be the first volunteer this morning? Come on up, pal. The next person wants to set up here will save some time of walking back and forth. So we need a few more, at least a volunteer. Stay in the chair. Good morning, everyone. I'm Hal Borson. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, thank you, Martin. Um, one of the great advantages of sharing a meeting like this is you get to pick out the people that you most love to hear. And uh, uh, when John and I were talking about this early bird meeting, the people that have meant the, 
so much to me, uh, Dick and uh, uh, Hal and, and Martin and Tony, uh, when I was new, uh, these early bird meetings and their sharing in those, made, it was a huge part of my early recovery. And I realized, too, that, that I've been running around trying to get things, keep things uh, going a little bit, and uh, I haven't uh, been able to attend very many of the meetings, nor have I uh, had a chance to share anything about the reason we're here. And, you know, one of the, uh, Joan L., who's the uh, Al-Anon chairman, came up with that uh, theme of the spiritual odyssey. And IDAA has been such a, a critical part of my uh, spiritual journey and has been a uh, frequent uh, stop on that journey. And I've learned so much from each and every one of you. Uh, the thing that comes to mind mostly is, is that as I look around and the longer I'm in the program, it becomes apparent that we are all more alike than we are different. You know, the, the, the drugs of choice uh, are pretty irrelevant. Uh, the stories are, my, in fact, my wife was asking me about the drunkologues, and I said, well, we don't, you know, in our group anyway, we don't, we don't do a lot of drunkologues. Uh, because basically they're the same. You know, they're about chaos. They're about pain. You know, we do all do the same things. We just do them in different places to different people. But the, the magic of the program for me is the fact that uh, the solution for all of us is the same, of course. And it doesn't matter how young or old, what sex, what your specialty is, or uh, where you're from how well you're educated, all that's irrelevant. You know, the fact is the solution is the same. The uh, When I came here, I was one of those non-believers. Uh, actually, uh, the word agnostic applied best to me because, uh, literally speaking, agnostic means uh, one who does not know. And if uh, there was anybody who didn't know, it was me. And uh, so everything I've learned about... Uh, living life, and particularly the spiritual life, I've learned from Alcoholics Anonymous. About uh, six years ago, seven years ago, Jim Roach from California invited some of us to go out there on, in February to play golf during the coldest part of the winter, and uh, we, of course, jumped on that opportunity. And uh, he had a close uh, friend who was a, a Catholic priest in the program who had been um, sober for quite some time and invited him to come out and speak with us. And uh, he clarified something for me, which uh, I had found uh, uh, paradoxical and I couldn't understand. And, you know, one of the profound things that I've learned here is, is that all spiritual principles are certainly um, uh, paradoxical. And what that means, I found out, is, is that spiritual principles are neither, uh, aren't either or statements, they're both and statements, basically. And that what appears to be a contradiction on the surface is really true. And one of the big contradictions that I always had trouble with was understanding why alcoholics, particularly old-time alcoholics, like to get up here and talk about how, why that they were sober because of the grace of God. And I didn't know what grace meant. I thought grace was that prayer that Grandma said at Thanksgiving and Christmas. It turns out, of course, that grace is actually... Uh, uh, most importantly, the gifts that God gives us because uh, he loves us and not because we deserve them. 
Well, if that were true, then an alcoholic should be able to stay sober just on the grace of God. Why, why all this business about working the 12 steps? You know, what is this business about having to get up and work at our recovery on a daily basis? Well, this priest said that the 12 steps are a way that allow us to get out of our own way. That in working the 12 steps, it allows us to get out of that selfishness and self-centeredness that cuts us off from God. And that our problem as alcoholics and drug addicts is that is that uh, God's grace has always been there and will always be here. It's just a matter of we don't know how to accept it. And that if we work the 12 steps, we get out of our own way enough to, to be able to receive God's grace in our lives. So you see, it's, it is a paradox. And it is the truth. For alcoholics and drug addicts, at least, it's both a matter of works and grace. And uh, and it comes down to just taking the action. When I was new, I I, uh, the, I went through a phase that many of us go through, and that is I was going to be the most spiritual person in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I bought all the books. I bought all the little meditation books. I think they were stacked. And, and I thought if I prayed a lot and read enough that, that maybe I'd become really, really, really spiritual. And, of course, what I finally learned after uh, that didn't work for a while is that spiritual isn't what I think and isn't what I say. It isn't what I feel. It's what I do. You know, the, there's an old cowboy in my home group, Terry B., and he likes to say, as spiritual as I ever get is when I'm working with another alcoholic. So the action is the key. And I tell my new guys that uh, if they want to get it, you know, they want to feel better, think straighter. You know, the solution is taking the action. You know, if you take your body, your heart and mind will follow. So I appreciate the opportunity to uh, share a little bit with you today. And I, um, I have uh, enjoyed being uh, part of uh, IDAA and, and particularly uh, having the opportunity to uh, participate in this meeting. Thanks, John. Good morning. My name is Lynn. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, as as I speak this morning, my sponsor is making his last trip to uh, his home in New York, uh, in Manhattan. He's dying from uh, not his pulmonary carcinoma, but his uh, nicotine addiction. And uh, that's after uh, 34 years of, uh, of sobriety in in this program. But he didn't get off cigarettes soon enough. And I've been going to some uh, grief therapy about uh, this loss. And uh therapist uh, gave me a little assignment last couple months ago and said, uh, she said, I want you to make a gratitude list. And my immediate reaction was, no problem, you know, just another assignment. She said, Martin, I'll, I'll get an A on this. And uh, she says, I want you to really reflect on it and spend some time. I don't want to hear about it for not next week or the week after. A month from now, we'll talk about it. So, of course, with my procrastination, uh, which is, I'm still struggling with, I kind of waited. But then I got serious about it that last week before the session. And so I made the list. And I put down first uh, my sobriety. And second, uh, my other uh, general health and uh, having survived the cabbage. And, and uh, third, uh, my wife and kids and and uh, their spouses and their health and uh, my job and uh, skiing in Sun Valley and this, that, and the other thing and made the appropriate list. 
And as I got closer and closer to the appointment, in fact, a few minutes before uh, I went in, I, I was struggling with all week, something's wrong with this. This isn't quite right. And it finally dawned on me what wasn't right. And what should have been number one was not my sobriety. What should have been number one was I was an alcoholic. And that's what I should be grateful for. And uh, I remember the first time I heard that in a meeting. You know, some idiot said, I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. This is a grateful alcoholic. And I thought, what a jerk. I mean, how in God's name could everyone make such a stupid statement? Now, I understand now what the individual means. Because if I were not an alcoholic, I would not have found this fellowship. Okay, that's that's the cup. And I wouldn't have found uh, the steps in here. Uh, that's the program. And that's the tea. And for a long time, I just had the cup. I, I had the fellowship. I didn't do the steps. Uh, I was, I had so dryity. Uh, no, uh, no sobriety. No real sobriety. Almost relapsed. I uh, then found uh, IDA. Uh, first meeting in 82 in Chicago. And I'll never forget walking into my first IDA meeting prior to the national meeting in downtown Chicago with Jim W. And uh, seeing other doctors and hearing their stories that I could identify with because I shortchanged my patients. I had uh, I had done that. They did not get uh, full service from this bank. They got a drive-through from time to time. And I had a lot of guilt and a lot of shame about that. And I thought I was the only one. So this was a new dimension to the fellowship I hadn't had before. And and that's why I keep coming back to this every year. Uh, because uh, you're a special added dimension uh, uh, to my fellowship. I can look around this room. A few years ago, we were in Jackson, Wyoming. And Jerry over there yelled across the dining room. And I can go to Alabama and see Jim or Michigan and see Tom or North Carolina. And see my... A few years ago, my wife was in New York visiting as my sponsor currently is. And I got the surgeon phone call interrupting me from this very important meeting I was in. She was sick. Um, and uh, took one phone call. One phone call to a psychiatrist that's in this fellowship, that's in the program. He said, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. And I knew it would be all right. There's no other club I know about on the face of this earth. Same thing happened in Jerusalem several years ago. One AA meeting a week there. And uh, immediately connected with somebody. It's a wonderful fellowship and a wonderful program. And out attitude of gratitude is where I'm at now. And I, I just want to thank you for being there. And I want to thank IDA for being there. And uh, for Dickett having it at the helm all these years. And, and uh, you, Hal, for, and your committee for this meeting this year. Thank you. I'm Jonathan. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I was sitting back there and uh, watching John up here, and uh, uh, I heard this voice. <laughs> uh, earlier this year, I was at an AA meeting, and uh, I was sitting next to Hal Marley, and he uh, leaned over and hit me with the elbow, and he said, we expect you to participate. <laughs> and I heard that this morning. Uh, you see, I'm a, I'm a spectator. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a psychiatrist, and I'm a spectator. Uh, now, unfortunately, I was not a spectator when it came to drinking. 
and uh, I was a participator. And uh, when I drank, uh, I could participate. Uh, but uh, when I stopped drinking, uh, I, I, what's natural to me is to stop participating. Now, I was promoted into Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, to me, that was a step up. Uh, I come from uh, screwed up and uh, and terminal unique and uh, and hopeless. And uh, so that when I found out that I was an alcoholic and I could go to Alcoholics Anonymous, that was a step up for me. Uh, you know, I, I can sit and I can listen and I can watch you and I look up to all of you. And uh, it's important for me to participate, to make myself do something that does not come natural, which is to be standing here. Uh, you know, I look up to all of you. You all are my heroes. I, 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 I heard somebody say that there are no pictures in, uh, in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, but you're the pictures for me. Uh, I'm really grateful to be an alcoholic, uh, to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and to be uh, to be a part of this IDAA. Uh, I thank you all for my sobriety. I'm Steve, and I'm an alcoholic. I'll try and be brief. Uh, when I got into recovery and I heard speakers, I could say, me too. And one of the things that I learned is that, that many of you told my secret. And my secret was is that I wasn't okay. And I had protected that particular secret very, very much. And that I wasn't okay, I strove to, like the Martin said this morning, to be good, to be a good student, to get accolades, but deep down I knew that I wasn't okay. He put alcohol on me and all of a sudden I was great. Uh, that worked for years and then it quit working I became a solitary drunk. But the feeling of not being okay and then adding an M-deity on top of it, is the rules didn't apply to me. And I felt like I was special, and I didn't have to obey all the other rules that other people had. And the flip side of that is that if I don't have to follow your rules, then I don't fit with you. And that worsened that hidden feeling of I'm not okay because I don't fit with you. And I, Burns Brady's not here. I haven't seen him this meeting, but I heard a tape and he talked about being bigger than the rules uh, on that tape. And I could identify with that. And it's one of those paradoxes is because I had this feeling, this sensation that the rules didn't apply to me, that I could shortcut everything. It just fed that undercurrent that I wasn't okay. And when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and hear my story, I recognize that and 
I can be one of you, I can be part of you, and then the feeling of being accepted, uh, this is where I can feel okay. Very few other places can I feel that. But that's one message. The second message is that one of the things that I had the end of my drinking was as I had I was a blackout drinker, and at two or three in the morning, I'd come to from this blackout, and then I'd have this moment of clarity. i got to quit doing this stuff. This is dangerous, you know. But by three in the afternoon, I'd have to drink again every day. And so I had a punishing God, and I lived with a tremendous amount of fear. When I got into recovery, uh, probably three years out, uh I had just done a carotid on the mother of one of my AA club members at home. And I went out and the patient did well, moving arms and legs, sticking the tongue out, and had no evidence of any neurological deficit. The operation went well. Uh, there were two or three other AA members, a couple of church members, and a couple of family members, 13 altogether. And so I sat down and showed him the little piece of the plaque I took out, which I always do, explained that the operation went well. And they asked me to join them in prayer. And as I sat there and held hands with them, just like we do at the end of the meeting, uh, I had a tremendous trembling sensation. And I had the realization for the first time, I said, you know, I had this fear all these times with every operation that God was going to get back at me and punish me by making my operations go bad. And then I had these 13 people here praying, and I said, you know, maybe I'm not quite so important that he's going to shit on their day and their prayers and make my operation go bad. You know, and and I really had that trembling feeling, but that realization came over me. And uh, maybe I'm not quite so important. So the lessons that I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, that Martin said before, when the student's ready, the teacher will arrive. And the teacher arrives in you, in my patients, and in life experiences when I least expect it. Thank you all for being here. I'm Steve, and I'm an alcoholic.